Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me into a deep dive into church history, into the ancient Christian church, the early church fathers, the formation of the canon and the scriptures, and how the Bible was put together, and why some churches worshipped one way and other churches worshipped a totally different way, and where all that came from. Well, I bumped into the ancient Catholic church in this journey, and it was then that I began to read from Catholic sources, from actual Catholic authors and theologians, and the history of the Catholic church. And it was really then that I realized that I knew nothing about what Catholics actually believed. What I did know, the few things I did know or thought I knew, were based largely on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast starts to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I am joined by staff apologist at Catholic Answers, Carlo Broussard. Carlo's a frequent guest or a regular guest or a not uncommon guest on this podcast. He's a fantastic guy to talk to and we're here this week talking about purgatory. The Protestant Guide to Purgatory. It's a fantastic conversation. We unpack purgatory from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the early church fathers, and logically how purgatory must work. How it's got to fit in there somewhere in the picture of salvation. It's a great conversation that really piece by piece unpacks the Catholic belief in purgatory. It's great, it's excellent for non-Catholic Christian listeners and Catholics who want to brush up on what we actually believe about purgatory, right from the source, a real-life Catholic theologian. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and by one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. You guys help to keep this thing going and growing, and I thank you for your support of the show. That money goes right back into this thing and helps it to expand and to continue to operate and pay those important expenses. It's not my full-time job, so all that money is very important. Your prayers, your fasting, your support... Any way you can help is amazing. That's patreon.com slash cordialcatholic for financial contributions. Thank you, guys. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Carlo Broussard on the Protestant Guide to Purgatory. Here's what you gotta know. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for watching and listening. Thanks for being here. It's going to be a fantastic episode. It always is when Carlo is here. And he's our guest this week. I'm joined, of course, by Carlo Broussard. He is staff apologist at 
Catholic Answers, a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live, popular speaker, and the author of some fantastic books, including Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs, and Purgatory is for Real, Good News About the Afterlife for Those Who Aren't Perfect Yet, a fantastic book from Catholic Answers Press. Carlo, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show, and hello. Hello, Keith. Thanks for having me back, brother. It's great to be back with you, man. Always glad to have you back. And I got to say two things right away. The first is this. I think the only guest who's been here more times than you have been uh, is our mutual friend, Dr. Doug Beaumont. I think we oh, have cool. a couple yes. of appearances. And the second thing is this. Thank you for this book, Carlo, because I, I, yeah, I, as a convert, I want to share our faith with as many people as I can who 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 uh, who are evangelical to Protestants, who are yeah. non-Catholic, New Catholic. It's the whole purpose of this show, the whole point of this show. And looking for a book on on purgatory, surprisingly, probably because why you wrote this book, it's hard to find. I yeah. find it very hard to find a good, concise, well-written, articulate book on what Catholics believe about purgatory. And along comes Carlo to fill in that gap for us. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome, Keith. In fact, that was sort of one of the primary reasons why I wrote the book. So the team here at Catholic Answers uh, asked me to write the book for the Catholic Answers Press. And the reason was is because, number one, it's the most researched topic on our website at catholic.com. It's one of the number one questions asked when we do uh, radio shows that deal with the Catholic Protestant dialogue. And number three, they're just, like you said, there's just not a lot of books out there that deal specifically with purgatory. There's a couple out there, right, that you can get. Uh, but we wanted to take a stab at it from the Catholic Answers perspective. And I think we did an okay job at it. And it's not just me. It's a whole team effort here at Catholic Answers. So I'm glad you like it. And uh, I think people are responding to it positively. Absolutely. I think I should think so too, because you and, and the team did a fantastic job. And I want to dig right into it if we can. I want to start here. I want to start with the idea of the non-Catholic Christian understanding of purgatory. Um, mm. Some reject it. I would have as an evangelical, but as we discussed right. last time on, on this show, we discussed this too. You then read some things like Lewis on The Great Divorce, and you go, well, this kind of makes a bit of sense. So right. I wonder if you can answer for us why some non-Catholic Christians reject it, but then why does them accept it? Yeah. So the answer to that question presupposes a distinction that has to be made. So once we, there's various aspects of the doctrine of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And what I mean by that, there are various objects of the final purification, right? So purgatory is this final purification for those who die in grace and friendship of Jesus Christ, but yet have not achieved the holiness necessary to immediately enter into the beatific vision, certain impediments, remnants of sin, you might say, that impede them from immediate entrance. And so those remnants of sin have to get taken care of. So in relation to our Protestant friends, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters will affirm some of the remnants of sin that might have to be finally purified, but then reject other remnants of sin that might have to be finally purified. So some Protestants will just outright reject it. There is no such 
temporary postmortem state of purgation whatsoever. So it's when you die, it's either immediate entrance into heaven or immediate entrance into hell. But for those Protestants who affirm at least some aspects of purgatory, they'll they will affirm at least as C.S. Lewis does in letter in his letters to Malcolm, the idea of praying for the dead. And that would imply some temporary postmortem state of existence, neither heaven nor hell, in which these souls exist and our prayers can assist them. That doesn't touch on the very nature of the condition of the soul, but it does affirm some postmortem temporary state of uh, temporary state of existence, neither heaven or hell, where we're assisting them in some way. Other Protestants will go a little further and and, and affirm what we call a sanctification model of purgatory, where they affirm that there is some sanctification that takes place of the soul, where the soul is finally sanctified because they recognize that sanctification is a process where we are conformed into the image of Christ by way of holiness, right, and moral righteousness. And they will affirm that that is a process in this life. And some Protestants will say, well, if that sanctification is not complete at the moment of death, then it will be completed in a postmortem state of existence that we can call purgatory. And that sanctification would entail you know, the purgation of any remaining guilt of sin on the soul when a believer dies, and any perhaps unhealthy attachments to created goods that incur from the sin that we commit. And so some Protestants, at least those Protestants who affirm the doctrine of purgatory, will track us as Catholics with that. They'll be right with us on those aspects of the postmortem state of existence we call purgatory. But the Catholic, the aspect of the Catholic doctrine that most Protestants who affirm the reality of purgatory will deny, and even those Protestants who reject purgatory in its entirety will deny this aspect as well. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why they reject purgatory, and that is the discharging of remaining debt of temporal punishment. So as I point out in my book, C.S. Lewis and you know contemporary Protestant apologist Jerry Walls, will affirm a sanctification aspect of purgatory, but deny the idea of discharging debt of temporal punishment. And that is something that is essential to the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, that there is a debt of temporal punishment due for sin is part of Catholic teaching. And if that debt is not completely discharged in this life, then it will be subsequent to death in this final purification. So those Protestants who will affirm purgatory most often deny the temporal punishment aspect of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Although it is interesting, Keith, in my book, I point this out that, you know, the 17th and 18th century German philosopher, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, argued for the reality of purgatory and he did so on the basis of the need, <clears throat> excuse me, for divine justice to be satisfied. And so he affirmed <clears throat> the possibility of remaining debt of temporal punishment due for sin. And on those grounds, he actually 
affirmed the reality of purgatory. He approached it from a philosophical perspective in light of the virtue of justice and what is due to us for our sin and concluded with the reality of purgatory, although he denied it as an article of faith, as something that's a part of divine revelation or even to be found in scripture, <clears throat> but he argued for it from philosoph- on philosophical grounds. So that was a very interesting detail that I discovered in my research that you have that Protestant affirming the temporal punishment aspect, other Protestants denying it, but affirming other aspects of purgatory. And I think in as much as they affirm the sanctification aspects of purgatory, it's sufficient enough, you know, that, you know, we can we can say, yeah, they believe in purgatory. They're just denying a particular aspect of purgatory that we affirm as Catholics. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, of course, all different kinds of Protestant theologies too, right? There's not one monolithic Protestant theology, so you get these different opinions and different, different understandings and nuances. I mean, I think I was quite okay as an evangelical to believe in a kind of purgatory based on my reading of C.S. Lewis and The Great Divorce and being like, yeah, that, that makes logical sense. Uh, nobody held my feet to the fire and said, hey, do you believe in this or not? And I, I was okay to kind of believe in that even as an evangelical, just on the logical sense of things. So there are different beliefs, right, amongst all kinds of different Protestant groups. Right. Between death and glory, there must be some purification if one is not completely holy yet, you know, because and it's based upon the revealed principle in Revelation 21, 27, that no defilement can enter into heaven. And so if we're not perfect yet at death and there is the slightest defilement, the slightest disorder in the soul that has to be taken care of before entrance into heaven, even if. You, as a Protestant, if a Protestant uh, holds to the doctrine of the forensic imputed righteousness of Christ, right, even on that view, you're still going to acknowledge, number one, the need for sanctification, and then if that growth in holiness, if that process of being made holy is not complete, you're still going to need the purification, right? Even if on the forensic level, your justification is and your eternal reward is eternally secure, you still have the condition, right? The position is secure, but the condition needs to be uh, rectified and, and, and be made right, less defilement enter into heaven, which is absurd. Yeah. Well, uh, that was where I wanted to go next with that idea of this revealed principle, because this is kind of the logical, to me, the logical weight for some kind of purgatory having to exist because God does not snap his fingers and I go from how I am today, if I die right now, drop on the spot, I wouldn't be in conditionally in a state where I could just be in the beatific vision, be with God in heaven, unless he somehow were to to, to change my will or something or, or change me fundamentally to, to be perfect suddenly, right? There's got to be some kind of change in my condition, which always to me as an evangelical spoke of some kind of, purgation, right? Between right. when I die and when I enter to, to see to see Christ face to face, yeah. right? And and even if that purgation is instantaneous, it's still a postmortem state of existence, neither heaven nor hell, right? Time uh, exceeds our terrestrial time in the after, and time in the afterlife exceeds our terrestrial time. We don't have a grasp on what that's like. So even if for a soul, I do think that souls will vary in their duration of existence in purgatory, but that doesn't mean that it's all 
to uh, all having a duration of existence, right? Successive moments of change, as we would call it in theology, discontinuous time or of eternity. But it's possible that for some souls, it might be instantaneous. But even if instantaneous, subsequent to death, then you still have a final purification in the afterlife. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so there is a need for this predation. And, you know, one of the arguments you were talking about, sort of the logical outcome of these revealed principles, namely purgatory. That's what I do in my book, Keith. You know, I have a chapter where I argue for purgatory by way of revealed principles. And basically the argument is this, if it's possible for a person to die in friendship with Christ, yet still have moral impediments to achieving the holiness necessary for heaven, well then the soul of that person is going to have to have such moral impediments removed in the afterlife before entrance into heaven. And then premise two, it's possible for a person to die in friendship with Jesus, yet still have moral impediments to achieving the holiness necessary for heaven. Therefore, we can conclude any person who dies in friendship with Christ is going to have to have this moral, these moral impediments to achieving holiness necessary for heaven removed. And that removal is simply what we call purgatory, right? And the, pre- the, the key premise that's doing the work there is the premise, too. It's possible for a person to die in friendship with Jesus, but yet still have moral impediments to achieving the holiness necessary for heaven. And this presupposes the revealed principle of mortal, the distinction between mortal and venial sin, that we can be guilty of sin, but yet still have a rightly ordered mind and will to God as our ultimate life sin. Because on the Catholic view, what a mortal sin entails is an individual turning away from God as his ultimate life's end completely. That's what a mortal sin is. And that's why mortal sin merits or demerits, if you wish, hell, eternal punishment, because one entirely turns away from God as their ultimate life's end. And if they die in that turning away from God, well, then that turning away is fixed. It's It's irrevocable. But a venial sin is that we have a defilement of sin because we turn to some created good in an inordinate way, but yet while we retain the rightly ordered relationship to God as our ultimate end, we're not turning away from him, right? And so that's why we can still be in friendship. We're still ordered to him as our supernatural end. And so that guilt of venial sin is not such that I have a debt of eternal punishment, I would only have a debt of, of temporal punishment. And so it's possible for us to be in friendship with Jesus and to die in such a state, but yet still have some defilement of sin that's that does not incur a debt of eternal punishment. Sin, defilement of sin, uh, that would be uh, a defilement that does not entail an eternal debt of punishment, but it would be nevertheless a defilement, and that would have to get purged. And that's what we call venial sin. Yeah, and you look at even taking apart the those terms that I don't know sometimes confuse Protestants. You look at the the guy who leaves who leaves Bible study on fire for our Lord, gets cut off in the parking lot, and flips a guy a bird on the way out. And you know, if he dies in that instant, he's gonna be a bit angry still, right? He needs to That's have right. something to happen between that death. You know, he can't. He can't go from that certain position with his finger into meeting our Lord face to face with that finger still pointing up because it, it happened in an instant, <laughs> right? Like there's right. there's gonna be a problem there. That that sure. even that little was, small kind of little, you know, yeah. angry moment, you can't yeah. turn and meet our meet our Lord in the next in the next breath. 
uh, with, without with that in your heart, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, because there was a disorder in the heart there. And that disorder has to be ordered before entrance into heaven. And that ordering that takes place immediately subsequent to death is what we call purgatory. Uh, if the if the individual dies without an act of contrition, well, then the guilt would be, have to be remitted subsequent to death. But even if there were an act of contrition, well, depending upon the rootedness of the disorder, that would have to be purged. That would have to be taken care of. Because once again, getting back to what I said earlier, a remnant of sin, an effect of sin is not only the defilement on the soul, the guilt, but also the unhealthy attachment uh, that the will has in as much as it turns to some creaturely good in some way in a disordinate way. Yeah. So I, I think uh, I want to briefly touch on some other, some parts of your book here and go and go through the, uh, the, the timeline, because I think someone will be surprised. You, you begin the, the book looking at the old Testament and purgatory in the old Testament. And I think some might be surprised to learn that they're, there is stuff in the Old Testament that kind of speaks about a, a, a place of purgatory. So if right. you could just briefly touch on that aspect. Uh, sure. I, I think listeners would, would be surprised. I, I certainly was when I first encountered this idea. Purgatory, Carl, in the Old Testament? Right. Yeah, and what I'm doing in the broader context is looking at purgatory or at least aspects of purgatory or at least what I as I say in the book I, the general idea of a postmortem temporary a, tempor- a post a temporary postmortem state of purgation or, or even punishment on account of wrongdoing and I'm looking at that general idea as found in a various religious traditions that go beyond the boundaries of Christianity. So Hinduism, Buddhism, Greco-Roman belief, and then, of course, I end that chapter with Judaism, simply to show that this general idea has a, a characteristic of universality here. It seems to be going beyond the boundaries of distinct religious traditions and, and having a note of universality. And as St. Robert Bellarmine argues, you know, whenever you have this sort of universality, well, then that provides reasonable grounds to think that this may very well be tracking reality, right? There's something to this, and this very well might be the way that after, at least one way the afterlife works. And so if one were to embrace such a general idea, it would not be without reason. It would be based upon reasonable grounds. And now it it becomes even more pertinent for us as Christians when we're looking at Judaism because Christianity is the flower of the seed of Judaism, right? And so there's more continuity there between Christianity and Judaism. And we do find this in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 38 through 45, where Judas Maccabeus and his soldiers pray that the sins of his fallen comrades be remitted. And they take up a collection to offer a sacrifice of the of atonement for the sins of their fallen comrades. And the author says to pray for the dead is a good and holy and pious thought. Now, it at this point in the book, I'm only looking at that text as a historical document, not necessarily the inspired word of God that comes in the Bible section. But even here we see historically that a century before, right at the time of Christ, that Jews believed in a postmortem state of remission of sins. sins. Some sins could be remitted by way of prayer of the faithful 
on, on earth on behalf of the faithful departed. And that shows this sort of universality, right? This general idea of a postmortem temporary state of purgation that's found in a variety of religious traditions, providing one reasonable grounds to believe. But the text from Second Maccabees and this belief within Judaism also provides a nice historical context, a theological milieu in which we encounter some of Jesus's teachings. And this Jewish background, this Jewish context actually sheds light in helping us understand uh, some of Jesus's teachings. And I deal with that in the chapter and in the section when we're dealing with the biblical evidence for purgatory. Yeah, so let's let's dig into that. There's 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 New Testament. You mentioned Maccabees, which of course is in the the Catholic, the traditional Old Testament. Um, right. uh, wouldn't be affirmed by all Protestants. Uh, that part of that that belonging in the Old Testament. Um, let's dig in there though to the biblical evidence. Is there is there Old Testament evidence apart from 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 Maccabees for the idea of a uh, of a kind of purgatory? I know there's I know there's definitely New Testament evidence that we would use yes. to point to certain things. Anything else in the Old Testament that points in that direction that we see? Yeah, that's a great question, Keith. I I haven't come across uh, some evidence yet or a piece of evidence yet in the Old Testament. Uh, so if there is, I just simply haven't come across it yet. Um, but, uh, but nothing yet so far in, in the journey of research and knowledge on the topic of purgatory. Uh, but like you said, there is some new Testament evidence. Yeah. Let's dig in there then. So uh, we know the idea of saved through the flames. We've, I've heard of this. Uh, I think this is one of the places we get some evidence for purgatory from. Yeah, 1 first Corinthians, first Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. That's Paul's teaching, yeah. Let's un- let's unpack a few of these in, in this area here for a bit. What else do we see in the Old Testament that, that speaks of this idea of, or affirms this idea of, of, of purgatory? All right, well, I, I assume you meant the New Testament, because we already <laughs> answered the question about the Old Testament there, because uh, I'm not aware of any other passages. Yeah, so let's look at Jesus's teaching first, and I think this ties nicely into what we were talking about, about 2 Maccabees 12. Where even if you do not accept that as the inspired Word of God, it does provide a historical backdrop for understanding what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 32, when Jesus says, the sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age, nor in the age to come. Okay. Now, as I argue in my book, Jesus elsewhere in his ministry, when he speaks of the age to come, he's referring to the afterlife. So we have precedent for thinking that Jesus is making a distinction between this life and the life to come. Now, notice the implication of the reasoning. He says the sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age, in this life. Well, what's the implication of that? Well, if that sin cannot be forgiven, well, can some other sins be forgiven? And within this life, of course, the answer is yes. But the same line of reasoning applies for his statement about the life to come or the after or the age to come. He says the sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in that age. Well, just like the reasoning applied to this age implies that some sins can be forgiven in this age, the same reasoning applies for the age to come. If the sin against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven in that age, well, then that implies that some sins could be forgiven. 
Now, what's interesting, Keith, is that in Mark's parallel version, in Mark chapter 3, verse 29, he doesn't add this extra tidbit of the sin against the Holy Spirit not to being forgiven in the age to come. Mark just simply says the sin against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Now, why is it that Matthew adds this extra tidbit of information concerning the forgiveness of the or the lack of forgiveness of the sin against the Holy Spirit? I argue that it's because of his Jewish audience. And this is where 2 Maccabees 12 sheds some light here. We know from 2 Maccabees 12 that the Jews of Jesus' day would have, they did believe that some sins could be remitted in the afterlife. So when Jesus says the sin against the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven, the Jewish audience that Matthew is writing to would have likely been asking the question to themselves, well, what about in the life to come? Does the sin against the Holy Spirit be forgiven in the life to come? Because we believe that some sins can be forgiven. And of course, Jesus anticipates that question and says, no, this sin cannot be forgiven in the age to come. Now, why would Jesus have to say that? Because the Jewish audience to whom Matthew is writing would have been likely and reasonably asking whether the sin could be forgiven in the age to come because other sins can. And that sheds light upon what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is affirming, by way of implication, the Jewish standard belief that some sins can be forgiven in the age to come, or, as I said before, in the afterlife. And that, Keith, is at least an affirmation of one aspect of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, namely, post-mortem remission of sins, the guilt of venial sin. But I, as I argue in my book, I do think, Keith, that we can infer from this that temporal punishment is also embedded in this. Because if the guilt of sin can be remitted, if one effect of sin can be remitted, well, then it's reasonable to conclude that another effect of sin can be remitted, namely the debt of temporal punishment due for sin, right? So you would have a punitive dimension there. And even Matthew, the same author, remember, when he gives us the Our Father, what does he associate sin with? Rather than Luke's version, which says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive the trespasses of others or the sins of others, Matthew associates sin with debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others, namely the debt of sin, right? And so I do think that we can make an argument by way of inference and implication that even here in Matthew 12, 32, we see explicitly, well, maybe by way of inference as well, the guilt of venial sin, but we can also infer a punitive dimension as well, that there would be, in post-mortem state of existence, some discharging of debt of temporal punishment due for sin. And I think the interesting thing is the fact that whether or not you accept Maccabees as part of the canon— I mean, you could argue quite easily that it, it should be in there. It was in there for the most majority of Christian history. We as Catholics have it in our in our canon still. It does give us a picture that of the context that Jesus is is speaking into. Right, the Jews of quite close right. to his time did believe this idea historically, whether this is canon or not. Historically, believed that there was this connection between between what we could do with those who have already passed away. So. In that historic context, yeah, you know, Christ, our Lord, saying these things, 
And, and of course, then I love your nuance of Matthew, including those and the reason why he includes those, it makes perfect sense. Right. That, that then those, those statements then make a lot more sense too, given that context. I mean, I would have read that as an evangelical and kind of gone like, what is the, what is the age to come? What does that right. mean? Those are those verses, you know, that you often kind of skip over or, or gloss over as a, as a Protestant because they don't make sense in your theology. But right. put that in context of that time period and what the Jewish people believed and were doing, or at least certain groups of those Jewish people were doing, and, and you see it makes a lot more sense, right? Yeah. It, it makes sense of purgatory. Yeah. And, you know, and some Protestants might counter, and some do in the literature, that the age to come refers to the final judgment, right? But I do think that you still face the purgatory problem. You're just, you know, shifting the time horizon because the same reasoning would apply even if you assert the age to come refers to the final judgment. You're still going to have some remission of sin that's necessary for a soul at the final judgment, right? Uh, because it's reasonable to conclude that there's going to be at least some soul at the final judgment that would need sins remitted before entering into the beatific vision. So it just pushes the remission, postmortem remission of sin to the final judgment. But I do think that we could, even if we concede for argument's sake, the age to come refers to the final judgment and a Protestant affirms the particular judgment, right? That we res- each of us receives a particular judgment and that we can enter into uh, the beatific vision prior to the final judgment. Well, then we could apply what Jesus is saying here, for argument's sake, at the final judgment. It would also apply for us at the particular judgment, such that if we are particularly judged subsequent to death, we have any uh, remaining uh, defilement of sin, then that sin would uh, need to be remitted. So if the final judgment, well, then surely at the particular judgment. Yeah, indeed. Um, so what else do we have in the New Testament? I mean, this is pretty, that's, this is a pretty good, I think, uh, example of why this makes sense. I want to get into a little bit later the, the how the, the church, the early church received this too, because I mean, it's always interesting to see, okay, we from 2,000 years later, can see this as obviously in here. But then how did the church interpret this? So I want to get there, but what other verses do we have or, or things we have in the New Testament that seem to speak of this, this, this existence of purgatory? Yeah, so we could shift to Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, and this is what you brought up earlier, you were alluding to earlier. And that's the classic text where, Paul speaks of a Christian who's going to be standing before Christ on the day, which in Paul's mind is the day of judgment. And as I point out in my book, even if you say that's the final judgment, the same principles will apply to the particular judgment if you affirm the doctrine of the particular judgment. And so the Christian's going to have his works tested by fire, Paul says, and if those works are gold, silver stones, and pre- precious stones and silver, they're going to survive, right? But if the works are wood, hay, or straw, represented by wood, hay, or straw, they're going to be burned up. And Paul says that the Christian will suffer loss on account of those bad works, right? The Christian will suffer loss subsequent to the works being burned up. So there is some suffering involved on account of those bad works represented by wood, hay, and straw. But Paul says the individual will be saved only as through fire. 
So there we see not only the works being tested by the fire, but the individual himself goes through the fire. And Paul seems to be indicating that the fire is an instrument of his salvation. So here we have a postmortem state of existence, since the judgment comes subsequent to death, and it's neither heaven nor hell where a Christian is experiencing, is going through fire, which in light of biblical in light of biblical teaching, fire is a metaphor for purification or purgation. So a Christian in a postmortem state of existence, neither heaven nor hell, is being purified, having works purified, suffering to some degree on account of those bad works. What is this reality? We call it purgatory. And I, I guess the, the you say works a lot, and I guess I can see the backs of some even Douglas getting up here, some Protestants getting up here, the idea that, well, What's happening here? Are the Catholics saying that we're just testing the good things we've done? And if those aren't good enough, then we're we don't we don't make it through this fire, or do we suffer more loss, or or how do you, how do we reconcile the idea of our works being tested with Christ yeah. being ultimately our salvation in this situation? Right. Well, we know that this is an individual who's already saved. So right. So this is not any sort of testing as to whether the particular individual will go to hell. If a person is is judged to go to hell, they're not going to be within this picture that Paul is describing. Because notice in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says um, that there's, you know, one foundation to lay, which is Christ Jesus, and that the Christian he's referring to is building upon the foundation of Christ. Now, within the immediate context, he does seem to be speaking about uh, disciples, right, or apostles, ministers, who are building up local churches on the foundation of Christ. But the context reveals that Paul extends what he's articulating here to all Christians as well, because in verses 16 through 17, he begins to talk about judgment for all Christians, right? And warning the Corinthians to stop their factionist activity and destroying the temple of God, lest God destroy them. So the principles of judgment he articulates in verses 11 through 15 by way of extension can be applied and include, applied to all Christians, not just ministers. Because as I point out in my book, there are other passages in Paul's epistles where Paul speaks of Christians as building up the church of God. So we're all builders in some sense. So that building project is going to be tested by the fire on the day of judgment. So the Christian has built on the foundation of Jesus. So this is a saved individual. And of course, Paul says it himself, he's going to be saved as only through fire. The works are being tested in order to, uh, I I would argue that the bad works are representing, uh, the wood, hay, and straw represent bad works. And if bad works, well then, some sort of defilement, right, on the soul. Otherwise, why would the works need to be tested? Why would the works need to be purged? Now, a Protestant might say that, well, it's determining the rewards that the individual is going to receive. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with acknowledging that the, the reward that Paul speaks of when he says he shall receive a reward, I, I agree that that's probably rewards of heaven and not salvation itself, because this individual, according to the classic doctrine of purgatory and Catholic understanding, is already saved. So the reward of salvation is already guaranteed. So I'm okay with acknowledging that this is a testing of works to determine the rewards, but notice that 
because of the bad works, there is some withholding of rewards, right? The Christian suffers loss on account of those works. And the Greek word there for suffering loss actually has the connotation of punishment. So there's even a punitive dimension here. In so in as much on the bare minimum level, you have a withholding of pleasure, a withholding of some good, namely rewards, on account of wrongdoing. And that's the essence of punishment. So there's at least a, a hint here to a punitive dimension, even within the context of purification, namely that the soul is going through the fire. And given the fact that fire is a motif or a metaphor, excuse me, of purification, then we can conclude that this is describing some sort of purgation. Yeah, and fire too is is painful to go through, right? You I mean it's purifying, but you can't you can't deny the the painfulness of fire in that in that metaphor, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm I wouldn't go that far and say because fire there is pain. I think that's a plausible argument. Like fire normally does conjure up pain, and that's a reasonable use of the metaphor. I don't know if I would want to hang my hat on that, but that fire connotes purification. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, and will the purification entail pain and purgatory? Yes, we know that by way of church teaching, the church does affirm that there will be some suffering there. Um, but the suffering that Paul, at least in this text, the suffering that Paul indicates is the suffering on account of having the bad works purged. If Does that refer to the individual going through the fire himself? I think we can make a good argument for that because the works are not to be separated from the will of the individual. So I do think we have some suffering, but I don't know if I can rest my argument for suffering simply on the fire itself because the the fire may be used as a metaphor for purification without pain, right? I mean, fire can be used to speak of gold being purified. That doesn't necessarily entail pain. So I could see how somebody might counter that. So I think we have to take into consideration all of the details of the text in, in association with the image of fire. And then I think we can come out with a reasonable conclusion that, yeah, there's some pain going on here, some sort of suffering. And, and I, I put pain in quotation marks there because we have a separated soul here however you want to parse that out as the nature of the suffering and that's within the realm of speculative theology as i point in my book i have a whole chapter where i think through the theology of purgatory and address some of those speculative questions as to the nature of suffering mm-hmm. in purgatory yeah well said let's let's get into then the the church's understanding the 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 when do we see, or when do you, um, I, I don't know when the earliest time purgatory is mentioned in the church, but how does a church then begin to develop a theology of, of purgatory? Because it wasn't as if uh, a wand was waved and in the Middle Ages, this was just kind of blinked up out of nowhere. Right? We have some right. uh, some evidence in the, in, in the Bible you've mentioned here. That is then kind of chewed on and understood as the church grows and, and develops and matures. What do we see the church develop this into? I mean, does it, does it begin at a certain point? We can say, hey, this is where this idea began. Is there a certain place we can we can point to at the, this theology well, started? We, we, yeah, well, we have uh, – we can divide the early Christian testimony, as I do in my book, for purgatory into two categories. Uh, the first of which is prayers for the dead. The second of which is just the idea of a postmortem purgation or temporary punishment. So with regard to prayers for the dead, we have early gravesite inscriptions – 
that date as early as AD 150, right? Where we read, my mother is Eucharist and my father is pious. I pray you, O brethren, to pray when you come here. This is this is was put on the gravesite by the person who died and was buried there. And to ask in your common prayers, the Father and the Son, may it be in your minds to remember, dear Agape, that the omnipotent God may keep Agape safe forever. So you have a request that when people go to the gravesite to pray for the individual. Now, why would they be requesting prayers unless they believed that they would be possibly in a postmortem state of existence, neither heaven nor hell, where they need assistance? So at least bare minimum, that implies that there's some lack of rest, right? There is some uh, discomfort such that they want prayers to assist them, and, or at least a temporary delayment, right? Uh, even the temporary delayment of entrance into heaven would cause, quote unquote, displeasure, cause some discomfort, some lack of rest such that they would request prayers from the living to assist them in order to bring that state of that condition of the soul to completion so that they can be at rest, right? So we see that as early as AD 150, we have the Acts of Paul and Thecla, uh, late 2nd century, about AD 160, once again, uh, prayer, uh, signaling prayers for the dead. We have Tertullian right about the turn of the 3rd century, AD 200, explicit evidence for prayers for the dead, the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity that dates to about AD 203, where Perpetua recounts how she has a vision of her brother Dinocrates, and she prays for Dinocrates that he may find rest. And then, of course, Cyprian of Carthage in AD 250, Cyril of Jerusalem, and, and then I just simply conclude that survey with St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th century. And then, of course, you have the general idea of postmortem purgation and temporary punishment. We have it as early as A.D. Um, 200, you know, Clement of Alexandria. He was a second and third century Christian theologian. So we have it as early as uh, the second, uh, excuse me, the, the third century, where Clement of Alexandria describes basically purgatory. He's describing a believer who's taken, who has taken with him repentance of it from sins. So that suggests he's saved. Uh, but the punishments that, but Clement describes such a believer as undergoing punishments, but they're temporary because he identified, he says these punishments cease. And then he says, uh, they cease when there is a completion of the expiation and purification of each sin, which reveals that this is a state of purgation, right? So he's talking about expiation and purification taking place for a soul in a postmortem state of existence. So what do we call that? We call that purgatory. And then I give some evidence for Tertullian, an early Christian theologian, Cyprian of Carthage again, Lactantius, Gregory of Nyssa. Basil the Great, and then, of course, Augustine. So we see purgatory implied in the early Christian belief about prayers for the dead and how their prayers can assist the departed, implying that they're not existing in heaven or hell, but in some state of unrest. And then we also have purgatory seen in the early Christian belief that there is a postmortem purgation and temporal punishment that's undergone in expiation for sin. And so because of that evidence, we're able to conclude that these early Christians in the 2nd and 3rd century believed in purgatory.
Yeah, which is again so so fundamental to understand. I mean, right? One of my big drives as as a convert looking into the ancient church, that's where I began looking into church history. I began to read these early Christians, these early church fathers, these writers from the very first centuries. And for me, I began to see increasingly they looked less and less and sounded less and less like my evangelical church did, my non-denominational church did, on things like purgatory. And it's not as if we or, or you for your book are just picking and choosing the, the authors of the quotes that sound like they might believe the closest thing to purgatory. A, a real survey of these early church writings, I mean, no one's saying, nope, purgatory isn't real. We die and whoop, we're saved, we're in heaven. It's right. th- This is the tone of the church as it develops the understanding of what this is all about. From a very early point in the church, and, and these are the people that were the closest to the apostles, like closest to right. Christ, to have the most, I don't know, quote-unquote purest version of Christianity, but the, the least chance for understanding. It's not as if this idea of purgatory developed thousands of years or a thousand years later during the Middle Ages or something. That's correct. Right? Yeah, this there's, is there's, quite there's, early there's on. His, there's historical continuity. We have evidence in the first century from Paul himself, right? We have evidence from the second century and third century on of these general ideas that are entwined with the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. So this is sort of the air that the early church is breathing. And like you said, you know, there's no evidence to the contrary. So when you have no evidence to the contrary, nobody outright saying when we die, we immediately go to heaven or hell, period. And you have all of this evidence that creates an authentic, legit atmosphere of belief in this post-mortem state of purification or purgation that's neither heaven nor hell, you have evidence for purgatory in the early church. Protestant systems of theology then develop with the Reformation and and push back against this idea of of purgatory. Not all of them, and not right away. Uh, What I inherited and what most evangelicals in North America and the world would would have inherited would be even removed from the Reformation much later that that kind of abandons the idea of of purgatory and many of the sacraments and many of the ways that we, even the early Protestants would have would have worshipped and understood their faith. But there are some places that modern evangelicals, modern Protestants would point to and say, these are some, these are objections to purgatory. These are why um, purgatory can't be real. And this is in some cases, biblical evidence. I know you deal with the, you deal with some objections in, in your book. One of those, I don't know if you have favorite ones to deal with, but the, the thief on the cross, one of those is, is often pointed yeah. to by Protestants to say, look, how can this guy being crucified next to Jesus, next to our Lord, how can he, in the next moment, be in paradise with Jesus? How is right. that possible if there's some kind of purgatory in the middle? And that, that's right. presented as a defeater to purgatory, despite yeah. the fact that there's evidence from the early church and, and Christians right. believed this for a long, long time. Um, as, as we do, as I did, as evangelical, we'll pull this Bible verse out and kind of say, apart from the context of history, however else understood this, I have found the answer that defeats purgatory. Here it is. So what do we make, though, of, let's start there, of the, the yeah. thief on the cross and, and that idea that that defeats purgatory? Yeah, you might label this objection as the immediacy of heaven objection, right? Appealing to certain biblical passages that would seem to support the claim that once we die, once a believer dies, 
immediate entrance into heaven. There's no intermediate state between death and glory. And of course, they appeal to Luke 23, 43, where our Lord tells the good thief, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So that seems to preclude any sort of intermediate state. So how do we respond? Well, as I pointed out in my book, notice, first of all, this objection assumes that paradise equals heaven. But we could challenge that assumption and say, well, it's possible that when Jesus speaks of paradise, he's not speaking of heaven. He's speaking of Sheol, right? The abode of the dead of the righteous souls prior to the ascension of Christ. Those souls where they exist in what was affectionately called Abraham's bosom. Like in, like Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 16 concerning Lazarus. So maybe that's what Jesus is referring to. So he's, if he's not referring to heaven, referring to Sheol, well, then this passage would not provide evidence for the claim that when a believer dies, immediate entrance into heaven. So that's one way we could push back on it. But another way that we could answer this objection, Keith, is say, okay. Let's say for argument's sake, I grant that paradise equals heaven and that when the good thief dies on the cross that day, he will enter immediately into heaven. Or even if, let's say, he dies, goes into Sheol and experiences no purification whatsoever, even though he's waiting with all the other Old Testament saints waiting to go into the beatific vision. Okay, that would not defeat the Catholic view of purgatory. That would not provide evidence against the Catholic understanding of purgatory because the Catholic doctrine of purgatory allows for the possibility that one does not have to undergo a final purification subsequent to death if all the remnants of sin are taken care of. All this passage would prove, Keith, is that the good thief didn't have to undergo a final purification. It would not prove that there is no postmortem final purification because, as I mentioned, the Catholic Church, paragraph 1472, paragraph 1022, teaches that the it's possible to bypass this final purification if one dies with such a fervent degree of charity that no remnants of sin remain and thus would not have to be finally purified. And we could make a plausible argument that the good thief on the cross could very well have fit that bill, right? I mean, we know from the gospel narrative that he is repenting. He acknowledges the punishment for his crime. He comes to the defense of Jesus against the other thief who's mocking Jesus. And so it's reasonable to conclude that the good thief has such a fervent degree of charity in his heart and sorrow for his sin that the remnants of sin are being taken care of. He's made the act of, I mean, he's repented, right? And the charity is so great that it's possibly the unhealthy attachments to any goods he had are being or purged and taken care of. And he's suffering for his crime. So it's possible he's discharging any remaining debt of temporal punishment such that when he dies, yeah, no final purification would be needed for him. But we're okay with that as Catholics. That fits perfectly within the Catholic framework concerning the belief in purgatory. So the good thief on the cross, cross in no way poses a threat to the Catholic belief of purgatory. <laughs> Are there other challenges that you like to dig your teeth into that you feel like might present a bit more of a challenge to the idea of purgatory? Yeah, so, I mean, I address a few other biblical passages that 
attempt to support the immediacy of having objection. But if we were to switch gears and answer that question with regard to another type of of objection, it would probably be the objection that purgatory is impossible to fit within a theological framework where you believe that Jesus' death on the cross and my acceptance of Jesus' death on the cross wipes away all punishment due for sin, both initially when I come into a relationship with Christ and consequent subsequently throughout the entire Christian life, such that the Christian, once justified, can no longer incur a debt of punishment, whether eternal or temporal. So if you're operating on that theological in, in that theological framework, on that theological presupposition, your belief is that once I accept Christ and the, the, the merits of his death on the cross wipe away all debt of punishment for my sin, both initially and subsequent throughout the rest of my Christian life, well then, of course, you're going to have a problem with the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, at least the aspect of the purgatory discharging any remaining debt of temporal punishment due for sin. And so what I point out in my book is say, well, yes, if that presupposition is true, if that is the order of providence that God willed such that once a believer is justified, once an individual is justified as a believer, and that God willed that the believer no longer incur any debt of temporal punishment whatsoever for the rest of his Christian life, if that was the order of providence, well then, yeah, you're going to at least have to reject the debt of temporal punishment aspect of purgatory. But we would challenge that presupposed theological assumption, right? We would challenge that view, that belief of that order of providence such that, no, we have evidence, as I provide in my book, that God willed an order of providence such that even justified Christians still incur a debt of temporal punishment that must be discharged. And we see this in Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, where the author teaches us that God punishes and chastises every son of his. That it speaks of every son tells us we're, we're talking about Christians here, those who have been initially justified, and that God punishes and chastises. And when you look at the Greek words there for the terms punishment and chastisement in both verses 5 and 6, the Greek words entail a punitive – have a punitive connotation. It entails punishment. What is punishment? The imposing of displeasure on account of some wrongdoing. Now think about this, Keith. If the Bible teaches us that God punishes his children, chastises them, well, that necessarily implies that there is a punishment due. That simply means the debt of punishment. Now, this is not a debt of eternal punishment because these are his children that the author is speaking about. So it must be a debt of temporal punishment, and it can only be a punishment due in order to preserve God's justice. God cannot impose displeasure upon us for the sake of dis imposing displeasure, right? That would make him a tyrant. That would make him a cruel God. But he can impose displeasure if the displeasure is due to us on account of wrongdoing. And so Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 reveals to us that in this order of providence that God has willed, he did not will the merits of Jesus' death to wipe away all debt of punishment for the rest of the Christian's life. 
We as Catholics believe that the merits of Jesus' death on the cross apply to us, wipe away all debt of punishment for sin, initially, both temporal and eternal. And Jesus' death is even powerful enough to wipe away all debt of punishment for the remainder of the Christian's life. But given revelation, that's not the order of providence that God has willed. God has willed an order of providence such that, subsequent to initial justification, the Christian can still incur a debt of temporal punishment. And if that is true, well, then if that debt of temporal punishment is not fully discharged at the end of one's life, it's going to have to be subsequent to death before entrance into heaven because a debt of temporal punishment is a displeasure due, but there can be no displeasure due that entails sorrow in heaven because there's no sorrow and displeasure in heaven. So that's one objection that many Protestants will pose, and that's a sketched way of how we can respond to it. <laughs> can you give us an example of something that would incur a, t- a punishment that would have to be remitted? Like, so, so you're talking about the idea of, of after we're saved as, as Catholics, we believe baptism does, does this for us as Catholics, what something somebody would do then to incur a, a punishment, what would an example be of that? Well, think about this. So I'll use the example of my three-year-old, right? (laughs) So when I give a little swat on my three-year-old's bottom when he misbehaves, why do I do that, right? So I'm inflicting some form of displeasure on account of a bad behavior. But why do I do that? I do that in order to teach my son to manifest to my three-year-old son the divine order, the divine design for human behavior, that displeasure ought to be associated with bad behavior and pleasure ought to be associated with good behavior. Now, the reason why I impose that displeasure on my three-year-old son in that way is because he is not able to reason yet the nuances and you know and reason to the immorality or the bad behavior, right? So he has to be taught this is bad. How do we teach him? By associating displeasure with the bad behavior. So the punishment is for the sake of manifesting the divine order such that my son can come to know that divine order of human behavior. And eventually, when he has exercise of free will, conform his life to that divine order. And the same is true for punishment for us. Whatever it may be, right? When I pursue a created good in a disordered way, I am taking pleasure where pleasure ought not to be taken. I am violating the divine order. I am I am putting a I am not totally, but partially putting a blanket over the light, the lamp shining light of the divine order of human behavior. I'm taking away from the glory of God in some way, right? And I'm, I am failing to conform myself to that divine order. Hence, I incur a displeasure due to me, a debt of displeasure, a debt of punishment, okay? Whatever that displeasure might be, I don't know. I don't have to articulate exactly what the displeasure will be, and nor do I have to articulate the degree of the displeasure for the sin. All I have to say is that there is a displeasure due to me. Now, God, in his infinite mercy, he could just simply remit that debt and not impose 
the displeasure and manifest his divine order to me in some other way. But the Bible reveals that God does impose displeasure in some form or manner to some degree upon his children in order to manifest the divine order, the truth of God's plan for human behavior in that way. And that's all we need in order to affirm this particular aspect of the doc, of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't I can't answer the question and give you a specific a specific um, example of a displeasure that God might impose upon me for some wrongdoing. I mean, and we can look to the old the Old Testament, right? I mean, we, I guess we could, we have examples in the Old Testament. So think about Adam and Eve. What did God do? He expelled them from the garden. Why? Because of the sin. That's a displeasure. They were in a a, a paradise. Now they're not in the paradise. They're going to have to work by the sweat of their brow. Adam will. He's going to have to bear children in pain. Right. These are imposed displeasures on account of their wrongdoing. The Israelites, they couldn't immediately enter into the promised land. Why? Because they sinned. They had to wander in the desert for 40 years. Moses, because he spoke to the because he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock, can't he can't go into the promised land. Right. That is a withholding of a good, a withholding of a pleasure on account of wrongdoing. So these are just. These are some examples of God administering or imposing displeasures upon his children in the Old Testament on account of wrongdoing. And the Bible in the New Testament tells us he does the same for his children in the New Testament. Here's one example for you. You ready for this one? In 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm glad you asked the question because I haven't thought about this. In 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 30, well, let's just say 27 through 30. Remember the St. Paul's text on the Eucharist. If you eat and drink of the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink, you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, right? And then in verse 29, he says, if you eat and eat and drink of the of the bread and the wine and and you don't discern the body of the Lord, you eat and drink damnation upon yourself. And then in verse 30, he says, and this is why many of you have become ill and some have died. <laughs> right? So Paul explicitly identifies the illness of some and the death of some as a punishment for partaking of the Eucharist in an unworthy manner. So there are some examples for you. (laughs) Making you work on your toes. (laughs) Thanks, Carlo. Uh, I want to end with this one last question. Uh, Fantastic book, Carlo. We are all in your debt for writing this. So thank you. You call it good news about the afterlife for people who aren't perfect yet. Can you, in a nutshell, tell us what is the good news about purgatory? Well, two, I, I, I articulate three joyful truths that constitute the good news of purgatory, two of which apply to us uh, individually. So number one, it provides the doctrine itself provides consolation for us as believers, right? We know that we're imperfect. We know that it's very likely that is very unlikely that I'm going to die with the perfect holiness necessary for immediate entrance into heaven, right? If there were no purgatory, well, then Keith, I would be forever separated from God, despite the fact that I die loving God, right? I love Jesus, but but it's likely I'm not going to die with the perfect holiness yet. And so the doctrine of purgatory provides consolation for believers, not to think that it's a second chance, but to think that Even though I loved 
I love Jesus, and it's likely I'm going to die with imperfection. And thanks be to God, that imperfection can still be taken care of in order that I can enter into heaven with God, right? God could have set it up in such a way that, yeah, he just leaves me with those impediments, even though I love him, and I would be forever disassociated, I would be forever separated from him. God could have willed that, but he didn't, and that's mercy. So it provides consolation for us as believers, and a variety of other ways it does. So, and I'll articulate that in one of the sections there. And then it also inspires us, Keith, in the pursuit of holiness, because once I understand what's getting taken care of in purgatory, I realize that those things can be taken care of now. And I began to cooperate with God's grace, as Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I can begin making acts of contrition to remit the guilt of venial sin, reordering my will through abstaining from certain pleasures that I tend to overindulge in, right? In order to reorder my will so that I'm not inordinately attached to those creaturely goods. Imposing some form of displeasure upon myself out of charity for love of God in order to dis charge any remaining debt of temporal punishment, right? And to manifest the glory of God that, hey, I took pleasure where I ought not to have. There's a displeasure due to me. So I'm going to take upon myself voluntarily some form of displeasure. We call that penance. And so we can start doing all of that stuff now. So it's going to inspire the pursuit of holiness. And then finally, Keith, there are certain joyful truths bound up with purgatory that go be certain joys bound up with purgatory They go beyond the joys of this life. The primary joy being the absolute assurance that heaven is theirs. In this life, from the Catholic perspective, we know that we can only have a moral assurance, but not an absolute assurance. So there's always that fear of the possibility of losing heaven as my eternal reward, of forfeiting that inheritance and that gift. But the souls in purgatory, they're secure in their destiny. Heaven is theirs, and they know it because they've had the particular judgment. God has judged their soul and and revealed to them their destiny. And that, Keith, is a source of joy that exceeds our imagination. We cannot even begin to imagine the joy of having that absolute assurance that heaven is ours and being freed from the temptations of sin and having to fight sin. This is why we call them the church suffering and not the church militant. We still got to fight. The souls in purgatory do not. And so that sense of rest, although not complete rest, but a sense of rest and being united to God in a way that they are not in this life, closer to God, not completely perfected yet in union with God, but closer to God. These are all sources of great joys that go beyond the joys of this life. Sounds good. <laughs> Carlo, I'll put a, a links to your fantastic books in the show notes description for this show. Where else do you want to point people towards to find out more of what you're doing and writing and that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, they can go to uh, Catholic.com. Everything that I do here at Catholic Answers is on at Catholic.com. I also have my website, CarloBroussard.com, which is sort of a one-stop shop of everything I do at Catholic Answers here because we produce a lot here at Catholic Answers, and whatever comes out kind of gets lost in the feed eventually. So you can go to CarloBroussard.com. And if they want to – if your viewers or listeners want to bring me out to speak – at one of their events in person, or to even do a webinar, they can contact our seminar coordinator here at Catholic Answers. They can go to catholicanswerspeakers.com and fill out the information online. That sounds great. And as viewers and listeners will have heard, you are a fantastically articulate speaker. You, you do some of the, the best uh, talks 
I have heard. So thank you for well, blessing thank us. Thank you, man. Yeah, thanks for I blessing us. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for blessing us with that, with your books and the work you're doing for the church. I want to say God bless you, Carlo, and that fantastic work. Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Keith. Take care. Well, that was it. My conversation with Carlo Broussard from Catholic Answers on Purgatory. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was fantastic. I love the structure of it. I love Carlo's answers, how he unpacks things so clearly. Hopefully you learned something new. I do whenever Carlo and I speak. Hopefully you're in that camp as well. TheCourtsOfCatholic.com is our website for my blog, for show notes for this show, and all kinds of links, different things that I'm doing these days. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, Cordial Catholic on Twitter, and YouTube.com slash The Cordial Catholic to watch this episode. It was filmed, it's up there for you to watch if you're interested in watching that as well. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support this show on a monthly basis. Those monthly donors get entered into all kinds of different perks. Everyone gets access to a special behind-the-scenes show and early access to episodes of this show. And $5 or more a month, patrons get entered into and automatically entered into a draw for books every single month. That's at Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic. PayPal.me slash Cordial Catholic for a one-time donation. Thank you guys for your support in advance. Thanks, guys. CordialCatholic at gmail.com to email me. I love your feedback. I read all the emails and answer them as soon as I can. So thank you for reaching out. Love to hear from you guys. Please subscribe to or follow this podcast if you can, where you can. Please leave a rating and a review if you can. Those help to push the podcast out to new people and go a long way into getting new listeners interested in the show. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Please pray for me. Know that I'm praying for you as well. And God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.